Uh, we're looking at the tabernacle from the inside out. Um, that'd probably be a good title for this whole last couple of months. Tabernacle from the inside out. You remember in Hebrew narrative, which is what we are in right now, you know, what is mentioned first has the most importance and the primacy. And so the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil was what we read about first in that most holy place. This is the throne room, and just outside the throne room is the, the holy place, that front room where we have the bread on the table, the lamp stand, and then just on the other side of the veil is that altar of incense, the altar of prayer, and that sweetness before the Lord. And I recognize I'm with you here. When we get to this portion of God's work, I like reading through Leviticus. We read about all these details of the tabernacle, and we... we we kind of want to skim, right? <laughs> because this is, this, this is not the most riveting Bible reading. Um, I totally understand that. Um, even though we know the Word of God is useful, profitable uh, for us as followers of Jesus Christ. So that's one of the reasons why I hope to read through this whole chapter with you through the course of this uh, message. Um, but our God is holy. He is to be worshipped in holiness and the details of this tent show us that uniqueness, that set-apartness. You're thinking, what are some of the things that are sacred to us? What are the, some of those things that you know, demand a certain level of respect and awe and reverence? We are walking, about, walking around the uh, Veterans State Cemetery over here off of Maryland this last week. It's Memorial Day this last week, right? Yeah, last Monday. And so we're walking um, you know, through the, the headstones, and of course they have all the flags spread out. It's just beautiful. And there was a plot of land. You could tell it had been disturbed a little bit, and there was a temporary placard there, and we kind of gathered around to, to lean in and look at that. And at one point, uh, my wife said, is it okay that I stand here? Now, why would she even ask that question? Good question. Because there, there's a sense of the sacred Something unique that should be you know, uniquely honored in that place. So the tabernacle, this tent, is a holy place. A place for revering, worshiping the Holy One of Israel. So how do the people of Israel, how do we as a church, connect with this holiness? This transcendence? Where do we stand in reading and interacting uh, with the details of this text. Thinking about our Sunday school curriculum as a church, usually we use the publications from Great Commission publications, and that uh, the material for the youngest age group is called Show Me Jesus. Um, Show Me Jesus. That is exactly what God is doing uh, through the tabernacle, through its furnishings, through the priestly service in that place. So as we look at this tent, all the details of this tent, we need to be asking, how does this show me Jesus? In fact, keep, keep a finger in Exodus. Before we even read Exodus, turn to Hebrews. Hebrews, uh, Hebrews is a really important book to keep open as you're reading Exodus, particularly Hebrews 8 through 10. Let me just read a couple verses here from Hebrews chapter 9. Nine verse eleven. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, 
not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So that's the New Testament backdrop. That is you know, what we need to keep in mind, living now under the new covenant as we go through the details here of Exodus. In Exodus, God is, is dwelling in the tabernacle. In John 1, verse 14, we hear, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we've seen His glory. So that tent is Jesus. And so that, that's the picture, uh, you know, this, this comparison between the Old Testament dwelling and the New Testament dwelling that I want us to focus on uh, this morning. So before I start reading this, let's go to the Lord and ask His help. Father, we are grateful for Your Word, every word that You give to us. You are the one who leads us through the Lord Jesus, leading us and feeding us through this living Word. Lord, You've told us Your Word is living and active. You are working Your Word to perform it. And so we trust You to do that in these moments through all the nitty-gritty details of the tabernacle. Guide us in our understanding. Guide us in our application of this, your word, to our lives. We need your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So with Bibles open there to Exodus 26, I know this is going to require a little patience as we uh, read through this, uh, looking at these instructions of the palace among the people. Exodus 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. So the inner, inner curtains sewn together, groups of or sets of five to make this one large curtain that would drape over both the top and the sides of the tabernacle. Um, it's a beautiful, you know, blue, purple, scarlet yarns all woven together. It's, it's made to be beautiful, attractive. Um, if we were to take these dimensions and put them together, I think it's a little over 2,500 square feet of this uh, beautiful uh, drapery. Um, engraved with, with the cherubim, those angelic creatures guarding the entrance to the most holy place. And there's the second layer, which is made of goat's hair, that's covering this, this layer we've just read about, protecting from the outer two layers. So we'll pick it up here, uh, verse 7. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge 
of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops in the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram's skins and a covering of goat's skins on the top. Um, so outer, outer layer of, this, uh, of these uh, goat's skin, or at least the, the second layer there, and then that's in between those two outer layers. There's four layers here uh, over this tent. Outer layer of ram skin, and then we read as goat skin. There's some debate as to what this actually was. It could have. It's a fine, fine quality of leather. I'm thinking it may have been a, an aquatic animal a, a leather from that. But to protect from the weather, you know, rain, dust, the sun, all the times it would take in, in building and tearing down this tent has to withstand these things. Um, now, if you have a tent or you've set up a tent, or you have experience setting up and tearing down a tent, what usually breaks first? What do you need to replace in a tent, oftentimes? Poles, right? A good tent needs good poles. That's what we read about next. Uh, Picking up there, verse 15. And you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenions in each frame, For fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 frames. And there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames. You shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, sixteen bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. So framing for the tent, at least 50 pillars of gold covered with acacia wood, um, each of these poles resting on two silver pedestals, two per column uh, for support, and cross beams for support around this. Um, If you're like me, you're reading through this and you're reading about all of these parts and the pieces that were gold and silver, you start to wonder that that's a lot of gold. That's a lot of silver and bronze. And we're actually told in chapter 38 how much was collected uh, and used for this. Um, So it and it's important for us because it's not some arbitrary amount. It's not just a bunch of guesswork here. 
Um, there was a standard by which they measured you know, the material. Uh, it can be harder for us to nail down because we don't exactly know this standard of measurement or what the sanctuary shekel necessarily was. But our best estimate, you can look at chapter 38, a little over 2,000 pounds of gold. It could be pounded very, very thin. Uh, and a lot more silver, about 7,500 pounds of silver and a little over 5,000 pounds of bronze. The further you're away from the most holy place, the less costly, the less expensive material that's used. So that makes sense that these bases towards the front of the tent were made of, of bronze. So that's the outside of the tent. Now when you look at the inside, inside where there's a veil and the entrance. Uh, verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. So these, these screens really look very similar in how they were made, except on the entrance there's no cherubim. That was only on the veil on the inside to guard the way to that most holy place. So what are we learning here about all the details? We made it through all of chapter 26. We're learning this is a unique and elaborate tent. That this is a beautiful dwelling. As I'm reading about the fine yarns and the embroidery work that goes into this, I'm thinking of the, the quilt we have in, in one of our hallways, another quilt that's actually stored away that, um, that Katie's mother handmade. You know, every square, every stitch, uh, hand-sewn. There, there's a personal touch and uh, care and time that goes into that type of work. Uh, there's nothing else like this in all the Israelite camp. This is the king's palace, the king of heaven setting up his camp here on earth. To approach the, the God of Israel, to worship him meant coming to the heavenly dwelling in an earthly space. Not just like going over to your neighbor's tent. This was different, a holy representation among the people. And it had to reflect that. We read in verse 30, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on a mountain. We read that here. We read it twice in chapter 25 and again in the next chapter. Um, so this, this construction, the worship of the tabernacle, must be according to the Word of God. So it's a heavenly space. It's also a holy space among the people. Every part of this tent is intended to reflect God's glory. Its beauty and uniqueness to show His beauty and uniqueness. He is wholly other than His people. And even the tent is set apart from the courtyard around it, which we'll read about. So the, the closer one moved to the tent, the closer to the holiness of God. 
Now let's consider for a moment how this should inform our own worship practices, our own posture as Christians. We know the New Testament helps us understand places like 1 Corinthians 3 or 1 Peter 2 that the church is not confined to this, to this building that we're sitting in. We are the building of Christ. Where the people of God are gathered, He is present, He is worshipped. But if He is holy, and we approach the King of all creation in holiness, then our preparation, our posture should be fitting to that. It should be appropriate for what it is we're doing. So I'll just ask a few questions here. Do we prepare our minds to approach a holy God in worship? Or are we so distracted? I know Sunday mornings can be very distracting. Are we so distracted we're barely stumbling in? Wondering what's going on? Do we look forward to gathering with God's people throughout the week? I mean, that's mental preparation. It's also heart preparation. As we pray for each other throughout the week, hopefully praying for your pastor, preparation, do we long to hear God's word to us? Do we long for the sacrament God says we need for our faith? I mean, the Psalms, all the Psalms, just a tuner for our hearts, a great, great calibration. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Folks, before the Lord Jesus returns, this gathering is the reality of that. A heavenly and holy space. One commentator, he said, there should be no greater anticipation among Christians than coming into God's holy presence. No greater anticipation. Here's where I think our brothers and sisters around the world, uh, they can take an affluent, apathetic, and fearful Western church to school. They really can. Maybe you read about or heard about Early Rain Covenant Church in China. They're meeting in uh, Chengdu, which is a large city in western China. This is a Reformed church, y'all. They know the Westminster and the Heidelberg. And so in the last six months, over 200, the church is about 500 folks strong now. Over 200 of them have been arrested at some point in time in the last six months. Um, back in December, the church was actually ransacked, destroyed. They, we still don't know where Pastor Yi and his wife are. We know they're imprisoned. Um, I know this is in the Lord's hands, but given his courage in preaching and calling the state to repentance, I don't know if we'll see them again, this side of heaven. <laughs> um, but where were the members of this church the week after this? They were together. They were worshiping in a park nearby and they were interrupted again more of them were were uh, were taken you know to jail for a while um, you know we see this happening in the middle east in africa our church buildings are literally blown up and the next week after picking up the remains god's people are together again for worship because it's a heavenly space an experience with the holy god We know it is God's grace to us. It's His command to us. We know that we need this. There's also a preparation of our bodies to consider as we come to worship. Are we well rested? 
before we come Saturday morning to worship, or Sunday morning. You may recall in Exodus 19, the people were required to cleanse their garments before they were to meet with God on the mountain and come into His presence. We're going to read how the priests were to prepare their bodies in preparation to meet in the presence of the holy. But you know, living under the new covenant now, how should we prepare our bodies and our persons for worship? What we wear conveys a lot about what it is we're doing, what others think that we're doing. I'm just going to leave it right there because we're going to look at the, the priestly garments later. But a heavenly, holy space, there's also a hidden space. The description of the veil here really makes this clear. Um, you know, I think some places are just hard to get into. Some spaces are hard to get into. Looking at the towers here over the river the other day reminded me of the towers over Cheyenne Mountain just southwest of Colorado Springs. You know by looking at all these antenna and towers that you know, the Space Command is doing some pretty cool things in that mountain, which is no longer you know, not manned very often anymore. It's just a skeleton crew there. But you've got to have the right job with the right clearance or know the right people to get into America's fortress in Cheyenne Mountain. The veil here, also known as the veil of the testimony, veil of the sanctuary in Leviticus, this thing is 15 feet long. Just to give you an idea of how big the tabernacle is, I tried to measure this out. If that's one wall, width goes right here to the edge of this pew and right where I'm standing to right behind Glenn. That's how big the tabernacle is. It's basically half of our sanctuary. Um, so this, this veil, 15 feet wide, at least 12 feet tall, you know, on those rings, um, and I've read anywhere from one to four inches thick. So this, this is not designed to be a door. This is designed to be a barrier that's, that no one could stumble into the most holy place. Um, you know, the, the only ones that could come were the, the priests once a year. Here's what Calvin said about what this veil teaches us. He said, How reverently God's majesty must be regarded, and with what seriousness holy things are to be engaged in, so that they may not approach God's presence without fear, nor boldly break in upon the mysteries of things sacred. So, so thankfully for the lives of the priests, representing the people, that the majesty, holiness of God conveyed in that ark was, was hidden. But at the same time, access to the Holy One is extremely limited. Unless you're the high priest, you're, you're not ever going to, to get past that. There's no personal entry into that space. Something else that's important here in considering the space, I need to mention this. It's the orientation of the tent and the courtyard. Maybe you picked up on this, or just a little bit as we read. The rear of the tabernacle is at the west end. So as you enter into the courtyard of the tabernacle, as you walk towards the tent, you are walking from east to west. Now remember what happens at the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. What direction are they cast? To the east. They're east of that heavenly and holy space. And every, all humanity ever since then been east of the heavenly and holy space. The east of the garden is what guarded the cherubim. And so the east, that cherubim woven into the veil, guarding the way westward, 
into the most holy space. So we put up a tent just the other week. We hope to use it this summer. We've never taken it out of the bag before. We got it at a garage sale at some point. So we wanted to make sure the tent was actually in peace. So we spread out the tent. We put all the poles together. There's seven poles of different sizes. So we're trying to figure out how this worked. Thankfully, on the bag, there is a picture of the tent all set up nicely with people drinking their coffee outside it. So we're staring at that. We finally get this thing put together. Well, you know what we did right away was to make a little diagram right down where the poles are supposed to go. Um, these diagrams and pictures are very helpful when putting things like this together. So this is what God provides Moses. Verse 30. Helped him make sense of this instruction. Give him a picture. We love pictures. We depend on pictures to put things together. Um, and if you, got, you have access to an ESV study Bible, there's a, a good picture in there of, of what the tabernacle may have looked like just to give you a sense of that. But again, that's not the real point. The point isn't the picture. The point is to, you know it now, you know the phrase, to show us Jesus. So we need to follow this type, to follow the Old Testament dwelling into the New Testament dwelling. So hang with me here as we we make this comparison. From the heavenly space to the heavenly man among God's people. Jesus is God's tent He's the sacred space where heaven comes to earth. Again, the Gospel of John, that divine logos, the divine word tabernacled among us. Colossians chapter 1 speaks of Jesus and His uh, divinity. It says, The heavenly man is the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Heaven has come to earth in Jesus. When people looked at the tabernacle from the outside, this is really interesting. It had these... You know, these outer layers of leather, but when you're looking at it from the outside, all that beautiful you know, blue and fine yarn that we read about, that's on the inside. When you look at the outside, it's not particularly eye-popping. Isn't that interesting? In fact, one pastor said, coming to the tent was to come to God veiled in the ordinary and earthly. Now listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. How he describes Jesus, the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So the heavenly, the majesty, the glory of God cloaked in the humanity of Jesus. Nothing all that attractive on the outside. But this is the beloved Son. This is often how God goes about His work in the world. He he will cloud His glory and His majesty in very simple things. Simplicity. What looks like weakness, what looks like foolishness, God will show forth His strength, His power, His glory, His grace. Heavenly space to a heavenly man. Holy space in the holiness of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, read that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Here's where the apostles got to experience this firsthand. They're out in the boat with Jesus, storm whips up over the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is sleeping. They're taking on water. They're waking up. Jesus, don't you care? We're going to die here. This is my paraphrase. You can 
read through this, Mark 4, Luke chapter 8, for the details. So Jesus stands up. He doesn't rebuke the disciples for interrupting his nap. Puts out his hand. He says, enough. Peace. Remember how the disciples responded? They wish it were still raining. They're ready to jump out of the boat because of what has just happened, because now they realize they are in the presence of the holy. And after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, He sends His his Spirit, enables His disciples to do some pretty amazing things. I'm thinking of Paul and and Barnabas and Lystra. And uh, they're ready to, to offer animal sacrifices to these men. These are the gods among us. Paul says, stop that. We're men just like you. The Apostle John, later on in the story, he's given this revelation. We see him on his face before the angel, twice actually. The angel says, stop that. I'm just a fellow servant. Worship gaunt. Never does Jesus say, stop that. When anyone looks to worship him. Think of the woman with that that jar. She broke open that very expensive ointment, poured it on Jesus' head, and the disciples are just... They're aghast at this uh, just reckless adoration. Jesus says, leave her alone. She's doing a beautiful thing for me. Um, Prelude to that burial, an act of worship. So the the heavenly man is the holy one, but but it's his humility that really astounds us. So the Old Testament dwelling, we have that hidden space. New Testament dwelling shows us the humble man. Um, The humility of Jesus takes him down that road of suffering, all the way to the cross. Not a cross that He deserved, a cross that you and I deserved because of our sin against a holy God. It's our sin that places that barrier, that veils any access to God. But that very moment that the heavenly, holy, and humble man breathes his last on the cross, here's what we read in Matthew 27, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. Following the tabernacle that we've read about was the temple with its veil. And let me tell you, there is no priest, there's no collection of priests, there's no man who's going to rip that, te- that veil from top to bottom. This is God Himself removing the barrier. He tears down the curtain through the death of His Son. So what is hidden is now visible. Where there's no access, there's now full access. Can you imagine the priest who saw that for the first time? How overwhelming that would have been? We can worship. We can walk westward into the presence of God because of Jesus. He is our way. He is God's presence among us. You know, the people of Israel could not see the Ark of the Covenant because of the veil, but they believed that it was there. They couldn't see what was in the Ark. That the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded with those almonds and the testimony, they couldn't see any of that, but they believed that it was there, even when it was transported from place to place. Okay, they're required to live and worship by faith, just as we are, just as a New Testament believer is. We have faith that Jesus lived and died and rose again. We have the testimony in God's Word, that report, and we believe it. This is what's pleasing to God. He wants, he wants to be trusted He takes great delight in being trusted. Not only this, but He requires that He be trusted. Hebrews 11 says, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. That He rewards those who seek Him. With the tabernacle, the Lord is showing His people that they belong near to Him because He Himself has drawn near. So we open with this question. I know we're going a little bit longer this morning. But how, how do we connect with the holiness, the transcendence of God? What are we to do with this heavenly, holy, hidden space that we find the Old Testament dwelling? We look to Jesus. Show me Jesus. Jesus is the heavenly, holy, humble presence of God in our midst. And maybe you're, you're wondering this morning, how can you connect with God? To have this initial access to Him. Maybe you've, you've claimed Christ, but you know in your heart that you're still on the throne. That you're still building the personal kingdom of whoever. I plead with you, go to the tent. Go to Christ. Confessing your sin. Not someone else's sin against you. Not your own you know, victimhood. Not your good enough. Not your better than that guy. Your sin has separated you from God. His worthy judgment. So that's the repentance part. Jesus says, repent and believe. Believe that God's right judgment for your sin has been placed on Jesus at the cross. He lived for you, He died for you, and He lives again right now for you. That's the gospel you must believe. And when that is true, your relationship with the Creator God is restored. You have full access into the Holy of Holies. So for those of you who have gained that initial access, this is the way to reconnect. This is the way back to God. It's the same way. Maybe as a Christian, you're feeling sort of stagnant. You know, summer faith is sort of plateaued. Your prayers just seem to, they're dry. Your Bible reading, you just have a hard time concentrating on that. Maybe just coming for worship like this morning, a Sunday morning just feels obligatory, burdensome. And this is a danger for us. Let me point this out. Satan loves to use this. He loves to accuse us. You, hey, you've put your faith in Jesus, Okay. Now you've got to maintain. Um, are you sure you're pulling your weight? Are you sure you're pulling your weight? Are you sure you're pulling your weight? Are you sure you're pulling your weight as a Christian? That's what he'll accuse you of. So we can claim to have, have peace and restored relationship with Christ by faith, yet live as if that relationship is maintained by works. So Christian, go to the tent. Go to Jesus. He is your first love. He is what your heart desires. All that your heart truly needs. And when you believe that, as that is worked in, that the grace of God that has captured you is a grace of God that holds you to the end, then the works, the works of love, the works of gratitude, they will follow. And you will show yourself, you'll show the world who it is you belong to. Let's pray together as we go to the table. Lord God, we thank You that You have shown us Jesus in this Old Testament Word. And now, Lord Jesus, You have prepared a table for us. Feed us now by the very presence of Your Spirit as You have fed us through Your Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.